Well, if you would, take your copy of the scriptures and turn in them to Joshua chapter 11. Um, If you're visiting with us today, maybe um, because of the baptisms, just know we preach through books of the Bible, and I've been preaching through the book of Joshua, and we've come to this 11th chapter, which really marks, at the end of the chapter, we'll be halfway through the book. And so let's just begin by reading this chapter together. Joshua chapter 11, and remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. So as we read, we are hearing the words of the Lord. Let's read together. Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jabin king of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Jobab king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinarash, and in the lowland, and in Nefordor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim And fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities, the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone, of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. 
He took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Amen. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let me pray and ask his blessing upon it. Our God, we know that you have said, through the Apostle Paul, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for rebuke and training, correction, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. We pray that you would instruct, admonish, correct, and equip us through this chapter of Scripture by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please illumine our minds to understand it and soften our hearts to accept it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout history... The people of God have had many occasions to reflect in amazement and in gratitude upon seemingly impossible things that the Lord has accomplished for them in his grace and by his power. And this chapter in the book of Joshua describes one of those things in history. It tells us how the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God revealed in the Bible, took a nation of former slaves, the nation of Israel, who at this point had been wandering as Bedouins in the Sinai desert for 40 years, and enabled them to conquer all the inhabitants of Canaan, seven nations who were far stronger and more numerous than they, and then to take possession of their land as their own inheritance, according to the promise of Abraham, under the leadership of Joshua. It was one of the most remarkable events in the entire history of redemption. It was one of the greatest things that God had ever done for his old covenant people, the nation of Israel. And successive generations of Israelites would reflect back upon it with wonder and with appreciation. We see it repeatedly in the Old Testament. Now, as we read the account of this incredible event here in Joshua chapter 11, we as Christians should also be able to see how it actually points us forward to even greater acts of God on our behalf as his new covenant people in Jesus Christ, for which we too ought to be filled with amazement. And gratitude. Now, in order to see this, let's 
begin our time this morning by just going back and walking through this 11th chapter of Joshua and looking at it in greater detail, and then we'll reflect upon its main lesson and how it applies to us today. Now, before we jump in, it's actually helpful just to recognize that chapters 10 and 11 together give an account of Israel's conquest of the whole land of Canaan after their initial victories of Jericho and of Ai. So Joshua 10, which we looked at last time, uh, describes Israel's conquest of the whole southern half of Canaan. And now chapter 11 gives the account of their conquest of the whole northern half of Canaan as well. And the descriptions of Israel's southern and northern campaigns in chapters 10 and 11, they're almost exactly parallel to each other. Both chapters follow the same pattern. So first, the Canaanites form an alliance against Israel. Second, the Lord assures Joshua that he would give them victory over the combined Canaanite army. Third, Joshua leads an attack against the Canaanite army and completely destroys it. Fourth, Joshua proceeds to go and conquer all the cities of the Canaanites in that region, along with all their kings and all their inhabitants. And then finally, each chapter reflects back upon these events with a summary of Israel's conquest. So that's the pattern followed in chapter 10, regarding Israel's conquest of southern Canaan, and now we'll see it again in the description of Israel's conquest of northern Canaan, here in chapter 11. So first of all, in verses 1 through 5, we see the northern Canaanites form an alliance against Israel. And that alliance is instigated by this man introduced in the first verse called Jabin, king of Hazor. Now Hazor was a very large city. It was roughly 10 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee, so in the region that Jesus grew up in, the region of Galilee. In fact, it's interesting that this site, the site of this ancient city, is totally agreed upon by archaeologists today. It's currently being excavated. It's one of the largest archaeological sites in Israel today. It was a massive city, and the city's size reflected its importance in that region. Indeed, we see its influence over the northern part of Canaan reflected right there in verse 10, where it says that Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. That is, those kingdoms whose armies had now joined forces against Israel. Now, this is probably why in verse 1 it describes Jabin, king of Hazor, Sending for the kings of Madon, Shimron, Akshaf, and then lesser kings in the region to come and form this military alliance. And so all the kings of northern Canaan, they all respond to the summons of Jabin, king of the great city of Hazor, and they join forces against Israel. Now verses 4 and 5, they describe the result of this. They say, And they came out, With all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Now that vivid description, it it emphasizes the size and the power of this combined Canaanite army. 
So first of all, that phrase, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, it just it describes the vast number of soldiers that had been amassed. And then that reference to their having very many horses and chariots, that emphasized their military power. One scholar put it this way. He said, as mobile firing platforms for archers, chariots were the most advanced weapon technology of the day, and they symbolized military power. The section ends with these ominous words. It says, And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. If you've ever watched that movie, Return of the King and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you'll remember that scene where after winning this incredible victory on the Pelennor fields, what was left of the armies of Gondor and Rohan were surrounded by this vastly larger and more powerful army of Mordor when they dared to approach the black gates of Sauron's stronghold. You might be recalling that scene in your mind. That's the kind of picture being painted here. After their incredible conquest of southern Canaan, the armies of Israel now found themselves face to face with a far more formidable foe than anything they had seen at this point. An army which dwarfed their own, both in size and in strength. And the effect of this scene, in verses 4 and 5, as one commentator has put it, is to cast a dark cloud of impending doom over the Israelites. But knowing that he would be tempted to fear in the face of this formidable foe, the Lord spoke to Joshua in that first part of verse 6. And he said this, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. In other words, Joshua was not to allow the size and the strength of this Canaanite army to intimidate him because it really didn't matter how big or how bad the enemy was. The Lord, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, was with them. And he promised now to give them the victory. Their enemy was... Now, no harder for God to defeat than any other army they had faced. You know, it's appropriate for us to just pause here for a moment and to consider how Christians can often become fearful and even despairing at times in light of the greatness and the power of the forces lined up against the church. You know, one thinks of how many Christians in the first couple centuries of the church must have been tempted in this way when the Roman Empire began persecuting them severely, seeking to stamp out the church. Or consider how the Christians that lived in more recent decades in the Soviet Union must have felt when the awesome power of that totalitarian regime began to be mobilized to stamp them out. Or what about Christians that are living right now? under the boot of the Taliban in Afghanistan. You know, in America, Christians enjoy a lot more religious liberty with respect to the government, but we still feel the weight of opposition 
being brought to bear upon us by powerful institutions in our society. So a Christian student in a public university, a Christian employee in some of the largest corporations in America, or a Christian politician who has to go out and face the media every day. They all know the kind of pressures that I'm talking about and how intimidating they can be. But what we have seen so far in Joshua 11 reminds us, no matter how great and powerful the forces aligned against the church might be, we do not need to be afraid because the Lord is with us. And he is the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. So if he is with you to fight on your behalf, then as the prophet Isaiah so famously has put it, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. So even if all the rulers of all the nations on earth were to somehow join forces to attack the church of Jesus Christ, they can do nothing that he does not permit them to do. Because as it lays out, for instance, in that great chapter, Isaiah 40, the one who tends us as his flock, gathering us in his arms, carrying us in his bosom, is the God who measures all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hands and marks out the heavens by the span of it. Before him, all the nations, Isaiah says, are like a drop in the bucket. They are accounted in terms of greatness as nothing but dust on the scales before him. So when the nations rage, Psalm 2, and the people's plot against God and against his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, to throw off the yoke of his rule, he sits in the heavens and he laughs because they can do nothing to stop his hand. So Christian, when you see the greatness and the power of forces lined up against you or against the church of Jesus Christ in this world, because of your love and loyalty for Jesus Christ, remember who it is that is with you. And do not fear. Rather, obey him with boldness, trusting that he is more than able to protect you and to cause you to stand as he sees fit. Well, after receiving a promise of victory from the Lord in verse 6, we're told in verse 7 that Joshua led a surprise attack against the Canaanite army, and the Lord gave them another resounding victory, like the ones we've seen previously in this book. It says in the rest of verses 8 and 9 that Joshua and the armies of Israel, quote, struck the Canaanite horde and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. You know those locations that are mentioned there? They're actually a long ways away from the original battlefield. This indicated that under Joshua's leadership, Israel simply would not stop pursuing them until they were completely destroyed. Why? Because that was the Lord's instruction to them. Notice also what it said in verse 9. 
Israel would have had a chance, right, to commandeer all of the advanced war material, especially those horses and chariots that the Canaanite army would leave behind when they fled or when they perished. But the Lord had specifically instructed Joshua not to do that. Verse 6, he said, You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. But once all the horses are there and the chariots are there, the temptation to not do that would have been great. But verse 9 tells us that Joshua didn't give in to that temptation. Instead, he followed through on what the Lord had told him to do. There we see verse 9. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now you might be wondering though, but why? Why did the Lord tell Joshua to do this? The answer is, he didn't want Israel trusting in the strength of their armies to give them victory in battle. And he knew that if they started collecting horses and collecting chariots, they'd be tempted to do that very thing. Instead, God wanted to, in a sense, keep their armies weak, in human terms, so that they might continue relying upon his strength in battle. You know, that principle, it's one that's reiterated again and again in the scriptures. So, for instance, Psalm 20, verses 7 through 8, says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It says, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Nothing is changed, by the way, in how God deals with his new covenant people. Of course, our battle is spiritual. It's not a physical battle against human forces like we see in the book of Joshua. But God still doesn't want us trusting in our own strength or our own wisdom for success. So church leaders, for instance, who rely upon education and gifting and big budgets and fancy buildings and marketing strategies to give them success in ministry, well, that is woefully misguided. Only the Lord can give us the kind of success that is truly spiritual in nature and eternal in value. So the Lord calls us to rely upon him alone, which is expressed by humble prayer to him for help and faithful obedience to his word just like we see with Joshua. Indeed, we ought to understand that just as God commanded Joshua to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots of the Canaanite armies, so the Lord likes to keep us weak so that we too might continue to depend upon him. Paul learned that lesson, 2 Corinthians 12. He learned that God had given him a thorn in the flesh to keep him weak so that his power might be perfected in Paul's weakness. Paul said, I've learned to rejoice now in weakness. You know, perhaps this is something 
that you need to learn to embrace instead of being frustrated about the ways that God has weakened you. You know, I know I need to be reminded of that continually in my life and ministry. Well, after completely wiping out this massive Canaanite army, verses 6 through 9, well, verses 10 through 15, the next section, tell us how Joshua then went and conquered all the major cities in northern Canaan and devoted their inhabitants to complete destruction, beginning with the great city of Hazor. Why? Because it was the head of all those kingdoms. Now, the text repeatedly emphasizes that Israel left no one alive in those cities. Why? Because that is what the Lord had commanded him to do. So, for instance, look at verse 12. It's just right there. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. You remember that I keep referring to this sermon that I preached at the beginning of this series called Did God Commit Genocide? Understanding the Destruction of the Canaanites. I know this is every time you see this in this book, it's difficult to grasp. And if you're visiting this morning, you might find it difficult. I spent a whole sermon walking through why this is not unjust or somehow too harsh on God's part. And in that sermon, I talked about the reasons why the Lord commanded Israel to do this were, number one, because God was executing his just judgment upon the Canaanites for their sin. And the wages of sin is death. But then also, it was to protect his people, the Israelites, from the Canaanites' corrupting influence as they moved forward. You know, the text does tell us, however, in verses 13 through 14, that the Israelites were allowed to take the spoil of the major Canaanite cities, and they didn't burn those cities except for Hazor. And this is probably because the Lord was intending the Israelites to actually go and live in these cities. Moses had told them that this would happen back in Deuteronomy 6, 10-11. He'd said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob... He will give you great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. You see, that plundering was actually God, in his goodness, fulfilling that incredible promise to his people. The description of Israel's conquest of northern Canaan there in verses 10 through 15 is then finally followed by a summary of the whole conquest in verses 16 through 23. It tells us how Israel had taken the possession of the promised land by by the end of these two campaigns, the northern campaign and the southern campaign, which we see laid out in chapters 10 and 11. Now, of course, we know from chapter 13, which we're going to get to, verses 1 through 7, that there were still parts of the land that remained to be conquered. So what's being described here in this summary of the conquest when it says that Joshua took the whole land is simply that by the time they got to the end of these two campaigns, Israel was the dominant power in the land. The land was subdued before them. They had taken possession of most of its territory. 
The main part of the conquest, in other words, was over. But this summary provides some interesting details, particularly three details about the conquest of Canaan that the author highlights because he thinks that it's significant for us to consider them. So first, look there at verse 18. In that verse it says that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now when you read through chapters 10 and 11, it would be easy to think that Israel's conquest of Canaan was a rather short affair. So the author makes a point here, looking back, to tell us that it wasn't. It actually took a long time. In fact, it's interesting, later on, in chapter 14, in verse 7, Joshua is speaking now to the Israelites, and he reveals that he was 40 years old when Israel had rebelled against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea. And then, of course, they were sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So by the time they actually entered Canaan, how old was Joshua? 80 years old at that point, right? And then in chapter 14 of Joshua, verse 10, speaking at the end of the conquest, Joshua said that he was now 85 years old. Now that would mean that the conquest of Canaan took about five years of warfare to complete. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because the Lord had said that it would take a while. For instance, back in chapter in Exodus chapter 23, verse 29 and 30, he had said to them through Moses, quote, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In other words, it was part of God's wise and good plan to give Israel the land of Canaan over an extended period of time. Because if he gave it to them all at once, it would actually not be good for them. By the way, this is a reminder to us that the Lord doesn't give us things that he has promised, oftentimes, all at once. And when that happens, he has a good reason for it. For instance, he has promised to sanctify us by the Spirit in this life. But when he doesn't give us the spiritual growth we want all at once, he has a good reason a wise reason for doing that, even if we can't see it at the time. Now, that's not an excuse, of course, for apathy in your Christian walk, but it is an encouragement and a motivation to keep going, to persevere in our struggle against sin, knowing God has a wise and good reason for why sometimes progress seems slow. Second, the author explains why none of the Canaanites surrendered to the Israelites in verses 19 through 20. You'd think that somewhere along the line they get the point and start surrendering. He tells us why that didn't happen. These are striking words. Verses 19 through 20, he says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except, of course, the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, which we read about. They took them all in battle. For, here's the reason, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. 
just as the Lord commanded Moses. You remember the story of how God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might display his power by destroying the land of Egypt with ten plagues? Well, now the Lord hardened the Canaanites' hearts so that they might not surrender but be destroyed in battle with the Israelites as a just judgment for their sin. Now, I've talked about this before, but let me just remind you of this again. This is what theologians have sometimes called judicial hardening, a hardening that is a penalty. In other words, there are occasions in the Scripture when God hardens people's hearts as an act of judgment for their sin. So as it says in verse 20, this judicial hardening, as it's sometimes called, ensures that a person will, quote, receive no mercy but be destroyed. In other words, it ensures that a person will receive the just punishment that they deserve for their sin instead of mercy. And remember, this is not unfair because God doesn't owe us mercy. Mercy is by definition undeserved. We must all beware that we don't become so used to God's mercy, we swim in it every day, that we begin to think that it's unfair if God withholds it. It's perfectly fair for God to decide to give mercy to some and justice to others. Do you remember Paul's words in Romans 9.18, even reflecting upon God's hardening Pharaoh's heart? So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In fact, it would be perfectly fair for God to withhold mercy entirely and give everyone the just punishment they deserve for their sins. Believe me, none of us wants God to give us what is fair. When he gives us what is merciful, that's what we don't deserve. And I think we all need to be admonished. Do not try and put God up on the stand and to judge him by your own standards. Nor let us dare to consider ourselves to be more just and merciful than the one who who is the standard of justice and mercy for the universe that he created. Finally, third, the author makes a point to tell us, verses 21 through 22, that among those whom Joshua cut off from the land by devoting them to destruction during the conquest of Canaan was a group of people called the Anakim. Now, the story of the Anakim It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It is one of the strangest and most difficult passages to interpret in the whole Bible. There it says, mysteriously, that the sons of God married the daughters of men, and their offspring were called the Nephilim. And then it goes on to say that the Nephilim were, quote, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. But far from thinking that this was a good thing, these mysterious unions and the offspring that they produced, the Nephilim, were 
part of what incited God in the rest of the chapter to bring a flood of judgment upon the whole world for their sin. And we see that, according to the Scriptures, apparently these sinful unions and the offspring they produced were actually resumed after the flood. Because when you get to the book of Numbers, particularly chapter 13, verses 33, it tells us that the Nephilim continued on the earth in the sons of Anak, which is what is meant by the Anakim, the sons of Anak, and that they lived in the land of Canaan. In fact, both Numbers and Deuteronomy describe these Anakim as a great people, tall, who made the hearts of the Israelites melt because they were like grasshoppers before them. In fact, there's very good exegetical reasons to believe that these mighty warriors, including most famously Goliath of Gath, who are described as, quote, the descendants of the giants in the narratives of David, that they are the Anakim. The books of First and Second Samuel make a point to tell us how David and his mighty men slew various ones of them in battle. In other words, they were giant men who were mighty warriors, always opposing God's people. And the reason the author mentions them here in Joshua 11 is that they were part of the reason why the Exodus generation had refused to take possession of the promised land back in chapter 13 and 14 of Numbers. You remember the 10 spies after going in and spying out the land? There were 12 spies, but two of them gave a good report. 10 of them gave a bad report. And they said this, quote, We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So the Anakim were a big reason why Israel refused to take the land and resolve to go back to Egypt. But now you see, you see what the author is doing? He's making a specific point to note that during the conquest of Canaan, Joshua had been able to cut off the Anakim from the land and devote them to destruction so that there were none left except a few in Gaza and Gath, which, by the way, was where those giants like Goliath came from later on. The point of mentioning this detail is just to prove that the Israelites' fear was unfounded, that their unbelief in God's ability to conquer the Anakim was misguided. They had been so foolish to think that the sons of Anak could prevent them from taking possession of the land. A few giants, in other words, were no match for the Lord of hosts. You know, it only takes a few moments of reflection to see that this is a lesson which is instructive for believers in every age, is it not? Including us today. Finally, the chapter ends with the summary statement there in verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Moses gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. 
There's so much there. We're going to talk about more about the themes mentioned in that verse when we come to future chapters where they're sort of unpacked in greater detail. But suffice it to say now that this verse tells us that God had done what he had promised. He had given the land of Canaan to his people as a place of rest through the faithful leadership of his servant, Joshua. So we've come to the end of the chapter. We've walked through it. I want to reflect now upon what I think its main lesson is and what it teaches us today. Obviously, the main point of Joshua 10 and 11, if you just step back, is Israel's successful conquest of Canaan. It tells us how they went throughout the land, conquered all of its major cities, devoted their inhabitants to destruction, took possession of the land as an inheritance which God had promised to them through their forefather Abraham. But each of these two chapters also emphasizes something about how that happened. So chapter 10 emphasized, you'll remember from that sermon, hopefully, that it happened because the Lord had fought for Israel. So in chapter 10, God's active role in giving the land of Israel to the Canaanites, it's mentioned 10 different times in the chapter. It's it's an obvious theme. Chapter 11, though, not disregarding that at all, but it emphasizes something different. It adds something different to the picture. It emphasizes that the conquest happened because Joshua was faithful to obey everything that the Lord had commanded. So let's just look back. Verse 9, And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. Verse 12, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded him. Verse 15, and this is really the the beating heart of the chapter. Listen to how it emphasizes this point. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And then finally, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So when you take chapter 10 and chapter 11 together, the main point really emerges. The Lord gave the land of Israel, or land of Canaan, as an inheritance to Israel through Joshua as he obeyed the Lord's commands. The Lord fought for Israel, gave them the land, through the faithful obedience of Joshua. Now, there is a secondary lesson here for leaders in God's covenant community. This isn't the main lesson, but it is a lesson that we can learn. What type of leader will God use to be a blessing to his people? Perhaps not the one that you think. Not just one who's young and energetic or older and experienced. Not just one who has education or gifting or a visionary strategy. Oh, those things are all well and good, but without something more fundamental, they're all useless. The type of leader that God will use to be a blessing to his people is, above all, a man who will faithfully obey God's word. That's the type of leader that Joshua was. That's what's emphasized in our chapter. That's the type of leaders, for instance, that we as your elders want to be for you by God's grace. That's the type of leader you should demand and require 
of us. But beyond this, this chapter teaches God's people something. It teaches them this principle as they look back upon these events and read about them in these chapters. It teaches them that they need a leader like Joshua who would bring them into God's promised blessing through his obedience. Except, as they're reading it later on in redemptive history, they know they need a leader that's greater than Joshua. Why? Because, well, look, even in our text, verse 19 reminds us how Well, they'd conquered all the inhabitants except the Gibeonites, whom Joshua had foolishly made peace with. Verse 22 tells us that all the Anakim were driven out of the land except some who were left in Gaza and Gath, who would come back to haunt them later. More than that, the reader of this book would know that the experience of God's promised inheritance, which Joshua had secured for them, well, that wouldn't last When Joshua was finished, through his imperfect obedience, the land had rest from war. But not for long, as the rest of the Old Testament makes so clear. You see, a greater leader than Joshua was needed. One who would bring God's people into a full and final, a permanent experience of their promised inheritance through an obedience that was perfect. In that sense, you see, the emphasis upon Joshua bringing Israel into their promised inheritance through his obedience to God, it established a pattern which would ultimately point forward to Jesus Christ. Oh, there will be other great leaders like David, but they too would fail. He alone, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the greater Joshua who brings God's people into an inheritance that lasts through forever through his perfect obedience to God. Think of the writer of Hebrews describing this eternal inheritance that Jesus has secured for us. In Hebrews 9.15 it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And, and by what obedience did Jesus secure this eternal inheritance for his people? Well, Paul described it in Philippians 2, saying, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So through his death and resurrection in obedience to God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has conquered for us has conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death, on our behalf, and he has guaranteed that we will inherit eternal life in his kingdom. I think of those glorious words by Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 34, where he says that on the final day, we who are his people, by faith, will hear him say to us, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And brothers and sisters, the rest that we will experience in that land will never end. So for us, believer, Joshua 11 should cause us to reflect with amazement and gratitude upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua 
who has brought us into our eternal inheritance by his perfect obedience to God the Father. And let us put our hope in him and gladly take up our cross and follow him throughout our life. If you're here and you're not a believer, soberly reflect upon the fate of the Canaanites. How the Lord commanded Joshua to devote them to complete destruction for their sins. And consider how you too are a sinner, like we all are. But that apart from Christ, one day a time of judgment is coming, a day of reckoning, where the Lord himself will return to this world and every sinner will stand before him to receive the just punishment that they deserve for our sins. It will be like the conquest of Canaan, except far, far more terrible. Realize, friend, that when the Bible talks about salvation, that's what it's talking about. We need to be saved from God's judgment before it's too late. And then look to Jesus, to whom this passage points us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, the scriptures say, was wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities. Through his perfect obedience unto death, the scriptures say, the many are made righteous before God. The offer of salvation is there for you. If you only repent and believe that good news, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the scripture says. So call on Jesus today to save you from your sins through his death and resurrection on your behalf. And you too will be reconciled to God and you too will inherit eternal life in his kingdom. Well, in conclusion, this morning we finished the account in Joshua 1 through 11 of the most remarkable one of the most remarkable events in redemptive history how the Lord gave the land of Canaan to the nation of Israel through the leadership of Joshua his faithful servant and we've reflected upon how it points us forward to an even greater event which God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ may we reflect upon these things with wonder and with gratitude this morning Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for these true accounts of ancient events which you have seen fit to have preserved for us in the written word so that we might learn of you, learn of your character, learn of your saving acts in history and might be prepared to better understand the great redemptive work of Christ which is at the very center of the scriptures to which it all points. We pray that you would illumine our hearts so that we would understand these things and as I prayed before that you would soften our hearts that we would accept them and receive them into our souls, and then it would be like nourishment to us spiritually. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.